If we're honest about it, he's far more progressive than the record of Joe Biden suggests he would be mm. uh, because of the people. I mean, ultimately, what is it? Morton Blackwell from the Leadership Institute says personnel is policy. And when you surround yourself with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders staffers, you're going to get their policies. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And thanks for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. Scott Jennings here along with my August panel, Sean Southerd, Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, and friend of the pod, and I think the first ever repeat guest, Wow, Eric Erickson, not via Zoom this time. You were one of our first guests, actually, and you were terrific. But you're in Louisville, Kentucky. I am. I am first time in Kentucky. Period. No wow. kidding. Goodness gracious! So the grass, by the way, people is not actually blue. They lied. <laughs> oh, don't give away the secret, man. <laughs> so you've come from Georgia to Kentucky to speak to, and I, this is going to kill you with all your buddies. The McConnell Center. I know, and I, I've literally leadership. now gotten two messages from two different people who said, if I make it out alive, I'm establishment. If McConnell kills me before I leave, I burnish my street cred as a conservative. <laughs> I feel like I feel like the transformation of, of Eric Erickson is, is some, somewhat happened on the pod. Because you told me when you were here before, you sort of wish Trump would go away. And now you're speaking to the McConnell Center here in Louisville. I mean... This yeah, is listen, an amazing thing. As a conservative talk radio show host, who replaced Rush Limbaugh? Yeah, I mean, career suicide here. <laughs> <laughs> so Eric is in town. You're giving a lecture tonight uh, at the invitation of our panelist, Sean Southerd, who's also a graduate of the McConnell Center, like Kevin and like myself. But you've been invited as part of a lecture series. And speaking as an alum of the program, thank you for coming to campus. I really think it's vital that people like you, with your sort of voice and your disposition, Come to a college campus to give a lecture. Can you give us a little flavor for what you're talking about tonight? Yeah, you know, relevant to to your intro here is the political realignment we're seeing happening in the country where everyone seems discombobulated. You have friends who are no longer friends because they no longer seem to see eye to eye in politics. And part of the, the, the process of the conversation is walking through what's actually happening in the country. About every hundred years, the country goes through a political realignment, and this just happens to be one. Uh, if As a student of history and political science, I find it fascinating because it's rare to live through a major political realignment and, and see it in real time. And in your mind, what it, what are the contours of the realignment? There was a piece in the New York Times this week by an old— Clinton uh, political hand, Doug Sosnick, who um, I don't think this is news to anybody, but he was sort of delineating how the new political fault line is essentially whether you have a college degree yeah. or not. That's being more predictive than your actual voter registration. Can you give us your sense of the contours of this realignment? Yeah, I, there is something to that. In, in, in The more advanced degrees you have, the more likely you are to be Democrat. The whiter you are, the more likely you are now to be Democrat. It used to be 100 years ago. They would refer to the Episcopalian Church as the Republican Party at prayer. Uh, now it's the Democratic Party at prayer. Right. Uh, and not only that, uh, it, it's arguable as to whether or not that church is still within Christendom, let, let alone. And you have blue-collar voters who have traditionally been Democrats shifting to the GOP. You actually have a measurable number of black and Hispanic voters and Asian voters moving to the GOP as college-educated white secular voters move to the Democrats. Um, the other predictor besides college 
college degree making you a Democrat is also how often do you go to church? Mm. And that transcends uh, race. The more you go to church, the more likely you are now to identify as being conservative and be sympathetic to the GOP. So given this realignment, uh, given your your views on this right now, how do you see this vis-a-vis 2024? I mean, obviously, uh, the Republicans are going through a nominating uh, uh, crisis <laughs> right now. The Democrats are going to stick with Biden, which a couple of years ago I would have thought was crazy, but I'm, I'm not so sure at this point he's he's not a clear front runner for re-election. You know, I still think with a recession coming, he's going to probably be an underdog, depending on who the Republicans nominate. If the Republicans nominate Trump, I think you look at 2018, 2020, 2022, the odds are in Biden's favor. Uh, that being said, we are headed towards economically unstable times, and a portion of the Democratic Party right now that's voting Democrat, I still think is very much like the suburbs. They thought the suburbs had flipped Democrat, and it turns out they were just rented out for an election cycle. <laughs> yeah. And some of these college-educated voters, I think, when their 401ks begin to decline because of Biden policies, go backwards to the GOP. I want to open it up to the panel in a moment, but on that note, I, I do think Biden has not figured out how he became the president. Yeah. It wasn't the Democrats. It was— Republican-leaning, center-right voters in the suburbs around Atlanta, mm-hmm. out where, near where you live in other states, Phoenix. Um, and those people are not interested in how far left he and his people have gone on cultural issues. They're not terribly interested in uh, the economic policies that Biden seems to, to be pushing these days, which, by the way, your piece this morning about charging fees to people who are taking out mortgages so they can redistribute that money to people who don't have good credit. Right. I mean, I mean, these, these are not the policies that these sort of center-right, suburban sort of Republicans signed up for. And I, it's, it, I, I find it fascinating that Biden doesn't seem to have figured out how he actually got elected. Every once in a while, you see an election cycle where someone thinks they won an election when actually it's the other side lost it. Mm. Uh, You, for example, you see it here with Donald Trump lost the election. It's not so much Joe Biden won as so many people turned against Donald Trump. In Arizona, it's not so much that Katie Hobbs won because people liked her. It's that so many people disliked Carrie Lake. You find these sorts of elections occasionally, and those are the elections where the winner tends to misinterpret their victory, thinking that, oh, people voted for me, as opposed to actually, no, they just rejected that guy. Sean Southern. Yeah, can you talk a little bit, Eric, in, in your view about on this on this trend? You know, Joe Biden campaigned as a moderate. He's nothing but. C- compare this this sort of administration that we have now to maybe the Obama years. I mean, is, wouldn't you say he's more liberal than what Barack yeah, Obama? Yeah, you know, he is, and I think that's a fundamental problem, is Barack Obama promised to be the great progressive reformer, and he got in and realized the politics of America were not where he was, and so he moved towards the center. Pains me to admit that as a Republican, but he actually was more moderate than Biden, who got in and in getting in had to make all the deals with the progressives to rally around him, has managed to keep his word to them, but in the process is alienating himself from the center of the country uh, in a way Barack Obama would not. He is far more progressive than he campaigned. In fact, if we're honest about it, he's far more progressive than the record of Joe Biden suggests he would be mm. uh, because of the people. I mean, ultimately, what is Morton Blackwell from the Leadership Institute says personnel is policy. And when you surround yourself with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders staffers, you're going to get their policies. Kevin Graff. So if Joe Biden and the Democrats are only talking to a smaller and smaller group of the far left Democrats, what is it going to take for the rest of the country to leave? 
it's going to take someone not named Trump on the Republican side who is willing to bring those people back. Um, that's one of the concerns I have with the DeSantis camp right now, although I have a belief he will pivot, is by being the cultural iconoclast that he is, he's signaling to Trump supporters, I'm one of you. He's got to be able to pivot to the rest of America and say, hey, uh, jobs in the economy and crime. Let, let's talk about jobs, the economy and crime. Let, we can move on from the culture war. I've established myself in the fight against Disney. If he doesn't do that, maybe you have a Nikki Haley or a Mike Pence or someone like that or a Tim Scott. You brought him up, and I, and I wanted to get your thoughts on DeSantis. Um, it strikes me the way this race is being covered is DeSantis versus Trump. But in my mind, it's actually DeSantis versus the other non-Trumps first. Yes. This is like the play-in game. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he has to clear that field first before he even has a prayer of beating Trump in a in a fragmented primary, no? Well, first he has to actually say he's running for president. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that is everyone knows it's coming, and so everyone's trying to get their pound of flesh before he does. My This is speculation on my part. I have a sense that if you were to ask the strategists at the other campaigns, in their dark moments, they would say, once he's in, he's going to be hard to stop because of the donors who are parked on the sidelines waiting for him. Right. Uh, and so they're trying to do everything now to rough him up to perpetuate a narrative. What I find most interesting, though, is that the narratives that are being pushed against DeSantis are based on sources who aren't actually connected to him in any way, shape, or form claiming yeah. to be. And, I, I mean, I get reporters from Washington all the time, including from some well-known news networks, saying we can't get anything out of his people. Mm -hmm. And yet they're producing stories, uh, sources close to DeSantis. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that the— 100% of the political media wants Trump to win and DeSantis to lose. 100% mm -hmm. of the Democrat operative types want Trump to win and DeSantis to lose. And about half the Republicans want Trump to win right, and DeSantis to lose. But about half the Republicans may want DeSantis. But it, it's really interesting the, the bedfellows that have formed between the Trump people the national press and the democratic establishment—they're right. all in the same place. They really are, and and you can—they even share—they're sharing talking points and messages right now. Mm -hmm. It's pretty fascinating. Well, you know, there's the news service Puck News, and I, yeah. I finally had to unsubscribe from them because I their their idea <laughs> is that they have the best source reporters who give you the inside scoop based on the best sources. And I started reading their political reporters like I actually legitimately know what you're writing is false. And yet you're telling me all these things about what DeSantis or Trump are doing that I know to not be true. Why am I subscribing to you? Yeah, that that, that one's I, I had high hopes for that. Me too. <laughs> and I subscribe to it as well because I believe in paying for quality content, which is why I subscribe to your site. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> I was just talking to another guy in the office here with you. And uh, it's one of the first things I do in the morning. We bounce the Eric Erickson uh, morning missive uh, off of each other. Jared Crawford. So I, I want to get your perspective, Eric, because you come from Georgia, which is one of the last maybe three purple states that's going to matter. I mean, really, it's, you know, Florida has gotten redder. Pennsylvania is maybe bluer now. Um, Kemp took on Trump more than maybe anybody. Now DeSantis is, is trying to take him on. Do you see DeSantis as somebody like Kemp who can sort of bridge that gap and win back some of the states out west and, and kind of bridge the gap for that new populace but not – it you know, depends on how he does it. The The yeah. thing that Kemp did that was really smart and deliberate on his part is he never responded to yeah. Trump. Uh, just for perspective, Donald Trump literally spent more money trying to defeat 
Brian Kemp than anyone else, including Liz Cheney, and he lost. Not yeah. only did he lose, every single Trump candidate in Georgia lost, except for one who happened to be from a billionaire family and wasn't going to lose anyway. Um, if DeSantis continues to do what he's doing, declares he's running for president, and then deflects like Kemp did when it came to attacking Trump, he possibly can gain new voters without alienating all the Trump people, which was Kemp's strategy. He didn't want that 20% to be burned out on him in the general, and it worked. So you think even when they're going to -to head-to-head, DeSantis should ignore or sidestep Trump? Yeah, I I think you can deflect Trump's attacks. You you don't have to go head-on against Donald Trump. In fact, I think the people who do go head-on to Donald Trump have a tendency to behave like him. And I've discovered Donald Trump's greatest superpower is to make everyone else behave exactly like him, and no one does it as well as him, therefore he wins. And that includes the Democrats. Yes. He makes them act like him and even worse. Yeah. I mean, it's it's been pretty— They are who they hate. Back back to Georgia and, and back to Kemp for a minute. Is he the best Republican politician in America right now? He's one of the best. If not, now listen, I'm biased. I, he's he's actually a personal friend. Um, he's just an ordinary guy, uh, and he doesn't have the pretension. Uh, he texted me the other day. As a matter of fact, maybe I shouldn't say this. Texted me the other day. He's like, I'm not giving up Budweiser. <laughs> he's, this is him. He, he's he's not a Bud Light drinker. He's a Budweiser drinker. He. If he lost tomorrow, <laughs> he would go home and live a perfectly contented life. I, I, I had thought uh, the other day that all the other brands within Budweiser should make ads making fun of, of Bud really Light. Should. I mean, <laughs> they should treat them like a pariah <laughs> within the company. Yeah. Like it. Sean. Yeah, so Eric, I mean, you are close to, to, to the governor. So, I mean, what's next for him? I mean, he obviously has a, has a situation in Georgia where he's been successful. I mean, obviously his star is rising not only there but nationally. I mean, where could he go? Uh, vengeance is mine, saith the governor. The the Republican <laughs> Party of Georgia actively tried to find someone to run against the incumbent Republican governor mm. and all the other statewide officers. Kemp has now gotten all of the state party's donors to come to his leadership pack and intends to rebuild the state in his image in a way that no prior Republican governor could, and it's actually viable. The thing that I think people misunderstand is Georgia's not really a purple state. It's a non-Trump state. Republicans literally just won every race in the state except the race where Donald Trump's guy got nominated, the U.S. Senate race, in a bad candidate. Uh, Kemp has the ability to remake the state in a suburban, conservative, not socially iconoclastic Republican Party. It's it's not going to be moderate, but it's not going to be social issues dominated. It's going to be law enforcement and education. Are we just going to get Democrats to stop voting with the new voter laws there? They'll be waiting in line. They'll never get a chance. Yeah, yeah, they they have been so thoroughly suppressed. We had yeah. record black turnout in, yeah. in Georgia. Are they just pass out in the voting lines because they can't there, get There's no food and water. <laughs> yes, none. You're listening to Eric Erickson on the Flyover Country podcast. He's in Louisville, Kentucky to give a lecture at the University of Louisville McConnell Center. Sean Southern is here. Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford. I'm Scott Jennings. Eric, this, I want- by the way, this is what they call a resetting radio. You're very good at this. Oh, oh, hey. Well, you know, my first ever job was actually radio news anchor. That's how I put uh, went through wow. college. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm an old radio pro. It was like the best job I ever had. I'm, I, I, uh, I love radio. Time to put him in the guest host lineup. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a... Uh, and and by the way, I hate what they're doing to AM radio in these new cars. Yeah. Like taking it out. I mean, there's a reason they're doing that. And in, in rural America, 
Western United States. There's a reason we have AM radio. Yeah, listen, I don't buy the conspiracy that this is a war against talk radio. What it is is twofold. One, uh, they want you to have to subscribe to an app that they then put in your car Mm -hmm. because the McKinsey consultants have told them that, uh, you know, if you turn your legacy automobile into a subscription delivering device, you keep making money off of it. The other reason is actually electric vehicles have, if you ever listen to AM radio and you're by power lines, you can't listen to it. Hmm. Same problem in electric vehicles. There's a fix for it, but it would cost them more money than they want to actually take care of it. The problem for people who say, oh, nobody listens to AM radio is actually if you're in the West, you listen to AM radio when you're in your car because you get your snow reports from AM radio from the National Weather Service and AM radio reaches further than FM radio. It's actually life-saving in the West to have AM radio. I wanted to ask you about your position in the radio business. Last time we spoke, um, we were still in the near aftermath of Rush Limbaugh's passing. You've kind of inherited that slot. And uh, and, and in my mind, you are the heir uh, to the Rush legacy. Um, in addition to doing radio news, I would also moonlight as a producer and, and run the board during the Rush Limbaugh show. And listening to him every day and what he did, I mean, it was magical every mm-hmm. single day. And, and in my mind, you are the heir to I that. I appreciate it. How, how do you find the, the conservative radio talk business today um, in terms of its influence on sort of the day-to-day Republican Party? But how do you see it as, as the influence on how we're realigning, as you, as you talked about at the top? You know, what I learned from being at CNN for three years and then Fox for five years is that uh, no one in the media pays attention to talk radio And yet Sean Hannity, uh, Mark Levin, myself, we have larger daily audiences than anyone at Fox or CNN or MSNBC. And people listen to it. Uh, Tucker Carlson, no offense to him, he has a massive audience and has a lot of buzz. uh, But there are people who listen to conservative talk radio in the country who have many more people listing many more minutes a week. Uh, it is, however, an industry that is run by largely private equity companies that are not conservative and hate conservative talk radio. I think they've tried to realign it. And honestly, I think some of the voices who want to replace Rush decided not to be themselves, but to try to be bad impressions of Rush. Yeah, And I think you're, this second realignment after his death is starting to come. And I, I'm hoping I can grow even more, which uh, looks like is going to come. Uh, it, it, Rush was actually a very personal friend and told me, and I haven't kept it a secret, I said his advice was never try to be him, be yourself. And conservative talk radio shines when it is thoughtful and independent and not just giving you the, the red meat Republican talking points where your job is to entertain people. It's not to tell them what they want to hear, to affirm their views. You can challenge them. You can have a relationship with them. But your job is actually to keep people company in their car or their office. And that's been missed by the newer generation of talk radio. You brought up uh, Fox News and and also CNN. Uh, Obviously, both are undergoing big changes. Fox most recently because of this Dominion situation. CNN, under new management, and I work there, have been now for, for six years, wondering because of your experience on that side of the business what do you see sitting in Georgia from your perspective on Fox moving forward 
in the wake of Dominion. And and how are how are you viewing CNN right now? You've had such a long history with the with the network and with the, a lot of the anchors and the people that work there. Kind of what's your what's your perspective in the oh, in the Lick era? So let, let me let me start with CNN because I actually love that network more than all the other networks combined. Um, it's what I grew up with in Dubai. Uh, as a kid who was a news junkie, I could get CNN, Bernie Shaw, and and Frank Sesno, and even Judy Woodruff, and then to work there for a few years, I still have great relationships with them. I want a news network that just gives me the news, uh, that tells me what's happening in the world and lets me make up my mind and isn't trying to steer me. I think that CNN editorially, there's still a voice that tries to steer me to the left and I still watch CNN as a viewer from the South who is a conservative and goes to church and doesn't find the voices in the anchor spots that relatable to where I am in life. Uh, I think at Fox, they pay greater attention. In fact, when I got hired uh, by CNN, Bill Shine, who was in at Fox, actually brought me into his office, pulled out a blank map of the United States that he clearly had this pitch for everybody, <laughs> drew circles around the coasts. And he said, the reason Fox is dominant is, and he drew a little little circle somewhere in North Carolina. And he said, the reason Fox is dominant is because CNN and MSNBC fight over the coasts. And MSNBC is is ahead of CNN because he pointed to the circle of North Carolina and says, they have the college towns. Hmm. Says And Fox covers everything else. And said, the company does research to figure out what people within 100 miles of a river valley pay attention to. And that's what they cover. So, for example... You will never hear a Fox News story on the Oscars the day after the Oscars because people in flyover country don't care. Right. And I wish they did more news and, like, brought their reporters into the commentary night. It's very entertaining, and you can't knock the ratings, but I also sometimes think they're missing the potential to be even more. We seem to be close to the total upheaval of the cable news network Mm -hmm. as being as— as influential or dominant in our political conversations. I mean, this the, the the industry's problem with the cable subscriptions is, you know, everybody sort of knows about that now. Is this going to be the last presidential cycle where we see cable news the way we have experienced it for the last several years? I don't think so, um, because there's still such a profit motive to reinvent it. I would say this may be the last, if Chris Lick plays his cards right, the last time we see Republicans treat CNN as an afterthought, because if he does get to the mission that he said he had, then CNN is the place where both sides can go and CNN play the honest broker. Uh, And I would judge 2028 by Republican candidates' willingness to engage with CNN, as opposed to most of the candidates now, only give them the time of day after they've had their Fox interview. I mean, the people I see on CNN right now are Asa Hutchison, he mm-hmm. shows up on the programming mm-hmm. quite a bit. Jamie Comer, the new oversight chair from Kentucky, he he comes on the shows quite a bit. We, we've had some success, I think, booking some people in. You know, we're not Desantis isn't doing anything other than a couple right. of a couple of select deals. I'm I'm still I think the I think the the jury is still out on whether you're going to see massive engagement with CNN in this primary. I hope that. There is, because I do think there's an audience there to be spoken to. If I could give CNN one piece of advice, it's they've got to engage first. And by that, I mean if they host the Republican debate, 
you can't give two hours on do they believe in climate change and abortion. Yeah. Uh, you need to actually ask them, why do you care about the debt ceiling when Democrats are in charge and not when you're in charge? Why do you, what is your vision for the future of the country? How do you deal with China? Republicans don't care about these issues in a primary. And when I see a CNBC debate or a CNN debate, they're asking the questions liberals care about, not what conservatives care about. I know. It, it's a question, I guess, of audience, right? I mean, yeah. they, they've got to decide. Are we going to cater just to the audience we have today, or are we going to use this as an opportunity to show that we deserve a larger audience? And I, there's a chance here to get there. There I really there is. is. I, I'm I'm encouraged by the change, uh, and I'm also encouraged where Fox has been. I the number of people I know who are or were at Fox who will privately say this would have never happened if Roger Ailes was still there. Roger knew you could not cater to the audience in such a degree that you were captured by them, which when I got into talk radio, Rush Limbaugh's, one of his pieces of advice was never get captured by your audience. Your audience is supposed to be there for you. You're not supposed to be there for your audience. Were you just jaw dropped by the sum 787? Yeah, I really was. I mean, stunning amount of money. (laughs) Yes. Can you imagine having employees that cost you $787 million? I I mean, the fact that, no one may lose their job either. Incredible. Is, I mean, and also you've still got multiple lawsuits to go. Yeah, Smartmatic and, and other individuals. Uh, Sean. Yeah, so we have listeners to this podcast. A lot of them are, are leaders in the General Assembly, our state legislature. A lot of them are, are running for governor or running for other state offices. Kind, gentle souls we call the audience. We love you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, what advice would you have uh, to, to them, you know, from, from flyover country? You, you're in flyover country. What would you have as, as someone who's kind of a leader of flyover country? What would you advice would you give them when they're trying to navigate these political trends in the Republican Party or in flyover country? Uh, what should they be talking about? How should they navigate what, what's happening? You're you're in a state where you've got two Republican senators, a m- majority of the Republican delegation I- in Congress, a Republican state legislature. So what have you done to cause yourself to get a Democratic governor? Uh, and what can you do to undo that? Um, and you have to play that smart. And I would suggest in, in states like this, like in Georgia, you do not have to play to the red meat Republican crowd. Uh, you have to play to the voters who vote for Republicans and voted for you, but then voted for a Democrat. Now I understand the dynamics as well of, of when Bashir got elected, but at the same time, you've got to align yourself politically in a way that doesn't alienate your base, but also doesn't freak out independent voters. And a lot of Republicans these days have gotten really good at alienating independent voters to secure a base that's going to vote for them anyway. Which issues do you think are the ones that are alienating. Is it cultural issues? Is it abortion? Is it January 6th? What, what is it you think it's the, the I, worst? I think arguing over a stolen election that most people think wasn't stolen is alienating. And also, being a jerk, you can... In fact, I had this conversation with with a friend last night who, who misinterpreted something I said. You can and should engage on the transgender issue because that actually creeps out a lot of parents that it doesn't pick up in the polling. Mm-hmm. But you can't be a brain jackass when you do so because people would rather reject you on the issue uh, if you're a jerk than embrace the issue by you being a jerk. It, it's, it comes across as stylistic. Uh, Republicans can fight a pro-life fight, but they cannot come across as jerks. They can't come across as someone who wants to lock your daughter up and force her to have a child. Uh, And they can't be someone who comes across as the guy who wants to lock your children up and throw them in prison because they're going through transition. Fight on the cultural issues, 
but also remember you got to love your neighbor. Do you buy the sort of conventional wisdom that's forming that DeSantis signing the six-week abortion ban in Florida is somehow going to sink any chance he has of becoming president? No, because DeSantis is running in a Republican state. and There's a guy the media loves named Brian Kemp who signed a six-week fetal heartbeat bill in Georgia, and they think he could be the next president of the United States. The only reason they say this about DeSantis is because DeSantis is the guy who might stop Trump, so they got to find something to criticize him on. I Kevin, mean, his, his answer, just real quick, DeSantis's answer is very simple. What works in my state may not work in your state. This is called federalism, and that's the point of and that's the point Mind of the Dobbs decision. <laughs> yeah. What? This is this is the point of the Supreme Court decision. This is the thing that's been lost in the conservative conversation. Is this is not supposed to be a national right. issue? It is supposed to be a state issue, and so we may have, and it may take a couple of years for states yeah. to settle out on this, Jared. Yeah. Well, I wonder even how much those that matters because. The media is going to paint whoever the nominee is as is the worst person right, ever, right? right? And so it doesn't matter if it's six, eight, 10, 15 weeks. I mean, I think for DeSantis, you're going to have to lean into this issue because it's a it's a conservative issue. It's the Republican issue. Is it going to matter if it's six weeks or eight weeks or 10 weeks? No, I mean, and I actually do think that the media has to some degree misinterpreted some of these races as one on abortion. Uh, I, yeah. it used to be pro-lifers were the people who voted on abortion. It obviously now is, is pro-choice people who do, but also your candidates really matter. For example, yeah. the Wisconsin judicial yes, race, yeah. mm-hmm. the guy lost by 11 points, two elections in a row. It might not have been abortion that cost him the <laughs> yeah. election. Yeah. yeah. We had a, we had an abortion referendum on the ballot in Kentucky last cycle. And the real issue in the race was this, the level of spending, you know, Kentuckians by default tend to vote no on constitutional amendments mm-hmm. anyway. But then when you throw on an eight or nine or ten to one spending disparity, right? I mean, it, it's really hard. So I, I think I, I do agree with you that some of these things were overinterpreted. Eric, we've got you for just a couple of minutes uh, before you got to get on. You taking him to Old Forester? I am. Uh, amazing. Oh, Good. We, we did Great the Louisville spot, Slugger huh? Museum. Amazing. Yeah. This morning. Listen, I, I I like Louisville. I'm impressed. Okay. Uh, do you, that'll upset all the people do, in Lexington. We got to do this. Then we got to put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite bourbon? Do I? Yes, I actually do. Okay. Um, my my standard go to in the house tends to be Basil Hayden. Okay. But my actual favorite is the fourteen year old Calumet. Okay. All right. Which is almost impossible to find in any of you listening from flyover country <laughs> who know where to acquire fourteen year old Calumet. E W Erickson at <laughs> me dot com. <laughs> the man showed up with an ask. I like it. In the couple of minutes we have left, I thought I would just ask you: What is something that you think conservatives? are not focused on enough today, are not talking about today, but you think over the next two, four, six years is going to be a trend, an issue, something cultural that we are really going to have to get on top of in order to be viable as a national political movement. Capitalism. Uh, yeah, I, I, Just out of the gate, and this goes back to the AM radio thing, we used to in this country believe the way capitalism worked is you produced a good or a service, people gave you money for that, and your profit was the byproduct of producing a good or service people wanted. Uh, in the age of private equity and hedge funds, money itself has become the product. Mm. And when money itself is the product, it must be disconnected from the morals of the system to produce more of it because an amoral person can get rich quicker than a moral person. And the result is that consumers become pawns and products to be sold for money. And if Republicans don't understand this, the Democrats are going to have an easy economic argument for the middle class. When you look, for example, at the car issue, uh, not to be flippant on this one, but more and more BMW started this, where if you want adaptive cruise control, you got to pay 
every year. Right. If you want AM radio, you got to pay every year. Or look now at this thing we used to call it cable, and now we call it bankruptcy five dollars at a time with multiple streaming services. Uh, the middle class is getting eaten alive by post uh, capital post moral capitalism. Republicans have an argument to make that Democrats can't actually make on the issue because Democrats have become such moral relativists. Uh, if Republicans can actually make an argument that the free market requires we stop subsidizing big businesses, we stop bailing people out so the creative destruction of the marketplace can happen, and we preclude businesses through actual regulation from using the middle class as the products they're selling to others, then I think Republicans have an argument in the future. It's going to become a massive issue as, within the next five years, more and more middle class parents realize their children won't have the life they've had unless something changes. Eric Erickson from Macon, Georgia, is in Louisville, Kentucky. He is on the Flyover Country podcast today. Eric, when you leave here, tell our listeners, how can we find Eric Erickson? I subscribe to your Substack, which if you don't, you should. It's every morning Eric writes something that I find 99.9% of the time I'm forwarding it to people saying, you've got to read this today. So I think it's a wonderful product. I know it's not your main thing, but to me, well, that morning thing you do is incredible. I appreciate it. So I, I've started to make it easy even for my radio listeners. If you pull out your phone and you text to the number 33777, just text E-R-I-C-K, my name. I'll send you back everywhere I am on social media, my daily linked podcasts, to the writing, to the website. So text Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. Eric Erickson, thanks for being here on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.